All right, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms, we will be in Psalm 49. Let's begin reading verses 1 through 4. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. In 3 BC, the first emperor of China, a man by the name of Qin Shi Huang, I'm sure I pronounced that perfectly correct, he was so afraid of death that he outlawed even the mention of it. Ironically, the penalty for talking about death was being put to death. In an effort to escape death, he, he funded an expedition for a man who claimed to know where there was an, an elixir of life, some elixir that he could drink and it would give him eternal life or it would keep him alive here, alive here on earth. Supposed to be on this magical island somewhere in the East China Sea. Great money was spent on that expedition. There was not an elixir of life, of course. And the great emperor died at the age of 49 by mercury poisoning because he thought it was giving him some special healing ability. In the 16th century, in France, alchemists, which I could term today as the equivalent of biotech geniuses that we have attempting to beat death today, discovered that gold, or they thought they discovered, that gold had life-giving and healing properties within it. And so people began to drink all kinds of mixtures of potions or, or solutions which had gold in them in an effort to stay young and beautiful and live forever. You'll be shocked to know that they are all dead as well today. Stories of the Fountain of Youth had been around for centuries there in the 16th century, and eventually a man by the name of Ponce de Leon got funding from the king of Spain, King Ferdinand, to sail to Puerto Rico and eventually to search for this Fountain of Youth, which was supposedly located in somewhere in Florida. Again, Ponce de Leon died, and so did King Ferdinand and everyone else that were his contemporaries. In 2013, for a more uh, for a time that we live in now, in 2013, Google launched a, a biotech firm by the name of Calico, whose primary and really only objective was to solve death. The next year, the PayPal founder, Peter Thiel, pledged to fight death. In 2021, Jeff Bezos, the chairman of Amazon, invested heavily in a company called Altos Lab, a company dedicated to trying to develop technology which would rejuvenate cells in order to reverse disease. Or in other words, make something that would reverse the dying process is basically what their purpose and what they're trying to do. Quoting the Washington Post, and this is probably the only time you'll ever hear me quote the Washington Post, but quoting the Washington Post in 2022... An article they published, they stated, quote, immortality or anti-aging, as researchers soberly call it, is the next big thing. Estimates put the industry's worth at a staggering $610 billion by 2025. Now, 
$610 billion is not a lot of money compared to our national debt, but it is a lot of money. Humans have always been enamored with immortality and attempts to live forever. The fear of death is real and has been real for all of mankind's existence after the fall. Usually, money is the primary tool used in those efforts. But there is a certainty to death which cannot be escaped, which money cannot buy away. And as we get into our our psalm here today, that is really the main subject of this psalm and of the psalmist. The title of my, my sermon is The Certainty of Death. This psalm really breaks down into three sections. Verses 1-4, through four, which we just read, introduces us to the psalm. Verses 5-12, through 12, if we could sum up those verses, it would be the folly of trusting in money. And then 13-20, through 20, we could sum that up in, in the differences in the death of those who trust in money or wealth and those who trust in Yahweh. In verses 1-4 through four here, in the introduction, the psalmist addresses all people. If you, you got that there to begin with. It says, hear this, all peoples. Let me say this quickly before we get in. We, we don't know who the psalmist is. We're not told. Uh, the the, this, uh, the uh, superscription that we have here to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah, is a common superscription that we've had in multiple psalms. We've talked about that before, what that, that is. It, there's, there's no indication that it is a son of Korah who actually wrote the psalm. It's the sons of Korah were those who, who were in charge generally there at the temple. They were known for those singing in the temple, in charge of the singing of the temple and the instruments there at the temple. So it's really just an address to them, but it's not indicating that they are the ones that anybody, uh, any son of Korah actually wrote the psalm. So we don't know who wrote the psalm. But this psalmist, he addresses all people here. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. All in the world and, and in all walks of life. If you, if you notice that from verse 2, he says, Both low and high, rich and poor, together. Listen, hear. This psalmist is just the mouthpiece of God though, right? And so God here is addressing through the psalmist all men, all peoples. And just right off the bat, we are reminded here to start with that all people are under the universal rule of Creator King Yahweh, right? He is addressing all people, not just the Israelites. He was not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all the world. All people of the earth then are called to hear what He has to say here. We see that this is a wisdom psalm, very similar to what you'd read in, in, in the Proverbs. So, so we see God extending wisdom to all people here. Whether they hear and heed the wisdom offered, though, is up to them. But this wisdom is freely given, and it is addressed to all peoples of the earth. Now look, all psalms are, are psalms that everyone should hear, right? I mean, God's Word is something that every man should hear. But... Some psalms are addressed to certain people, specifically, at least in the context of that psalm, usually the Israelites. Sometimes they're addressed to the enemies of God specifically, or sometimes they're addressed to the psalmist. He's talking to himself, so to speak, or he's praying. 
This psalm is one addressed to the whole world, though, as we just saw. And again, it is wisdom that all need to hear and understand. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're in a position of great power or if you're a homeless person. And the only person that you have to worry about or have control over is yourself. This psalm applies to us all equally. The subject of this psalm is going to affect us all equally. This appears to be something that the psalmist has been thinking about or or even worrying about and struggling with because we read here that it has been the meditation of his heart. This is not the the only psalm that addresses similar concerns to what this psalmist has here either. But God does give this psalmist wisdom or an answer to this riddle or this question as he's, he's had it on his heart and as he's been pondering what this is, as he's been thinking through this. And, and so he, he gets the answer and then he puts it to music. In verses 5-9 through nine, we read, Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they, call, though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. So here beginning in verse 5, we begin to see what this concern was, what this meditation, this, this issue that this psalmist had been, been pondering and dwelling in, on and, and the problem that he'd had in his heart. And, and really we see the reason for the title that most of you probably have in, in your Bibles up at the top, Why Should I Fear in Times of Trouble? That's what he, he says to begin in verse 5, Why Should I Fear in Times of Trouble? The psalmist, he takes that that question there, and he, he has a, a heavenly view to the subject of this, this psalm and, and really what is, what is causing him a problem immediately in his heart. He takes a heavenly view specifically to the prosperity of the wicked and, and even to the persecution from which the, the wicked, rich, and powerful are causing him. I think both of those are in view here, but we see, he says, when the iniquity of those cheat me, surrounds me. So we see that as he, he says that, he goes on in verse 6, as those who trust in their wealth, so those who are cheating him and surrounding him, with, by che- or surrounding him cheating him, are, are those who are trusting in their wealth and boasting of the abundance of their riches. So the, this is the group in which is troubling him. It is the group in which he has had an issue with and that he's, he's just struggling with how to deal with what's been going on in his life and how to view what's been happening. But as God gives him wisdom and as he... He puts this to music. God gives him the wisdom of how to, again, look at this and approach this. And it is not from an earthly view. It is from a a heavenly view. This is a difficult subject for Christians, I I think. Not just Christians at this time. Not just those that that believed in Yahweh at at this time and and that trusted in God. The Jews that that were true believers, they didn't just struggle with it then. We struggle with it now. It's been a a struggle for all true believers in God throughout the history of of mankind, really, I think. The the subject of how the the wicked prosper. And and even how the wicked who have power and who cause persecution to righteous, how they prosper and how God allows that to happen. 
Psalm 73 is one that addresses this. It's written by Asaph. He writes about the prosperity of the wicked and how he struggled with seeing that. He, he saw how they prospered, how they, they did well. In, in that psalm, Asaph, he spends a, a lot of time laying out how the, the wicked prospered and, and again, how they even stuck their nose up to God during that prosperity. They obviously didn't believe Him, but they, they mocked even at times God and those who trusted and believed in God. And, and Asaph just struggled as he saw that. Eventually, though, Asaph has peace in that psalm, and he has peace as he entered into the sanctuary of God. There, in the sanctuary of God, he was reminded that the the wicked's prosperity, it would not last. It was coming to an end. In fact, destruction and ruin is what waited them in eternity, not prosperity. Now, our psalm before us today, and our psalmist doesn't spend any time really talking about the ways in which the wicked prosper... It's just assumed here. We just see that there are those who trust in their riches in abundance. Those who have riches in abundance. So they are prospering. But the psalmist here specifically appears to be dealing with a more personal attack by these wicked who prosper. Asaph, again, was struggling with the prosperity of the wicked in general as he looked around and saw it. Our psalmist appears to have been suffering at the hands of those wicked, rich, and powerful He appears to have been persecuted or or cheated to some extent by those who were in power or those who had money. He does not say here that he had fear of these individuals. And I want us to see this. It's not that he's saying he feared those who persecuted him, those who cheated him, those who were rich and powerful. No, he doesn't fear them. He just feared the times of trouble which, which they brought to him. The times of persecution, the times of, of cheating which was brought on by them. But there's no question that it, that was as a, as a result of these individuals. Again, this was not a, a trouble that he brought on himself. Instead, of, instead, it was trouble that he was dealing with because of the actions of others, right? And we aren't told exactly what kind of cheating there in verse 5 or persecution that was occur, occurring to him, but as I was studying through this, it was hard not to think of our time in Ezekiel on Wednesday nights. For those of you who haven't been with us as we've gone through that study, Ezekiel has been painting a, a, a picture, a very clear picture of the society in Judah, specifically in Jerusalem, right before Babylon invaded there that third time and that final time and then ultimately destroyed Jerusalem. In, in Ezekiel, God is warning them and had been warning for years and years, but He's warning them over and over, this, is, this would happen, this is going to happen, and this is happening because He's bringing judgment on the people of Judah for their sins, for their wickedness. God warned them that this judgment of this judgment, He issued indictments to them. He's telling them you know, their charges, what they had been doing wrong, and, and why He's bringing judgment on them. And in these indictments, God calls them a bloody city. They were a bunch of murderers, is what they were. One of the ways in which they murdered, as as Ezekiel tells us, is by bribing others and telling lies on others. Oftentimes, they would bribe judges there, the judges there in Judah. Someone would make up some set of lies about someone else, and and not just any lies, but lies which would, would bring about the death of that person, cause a judgment of death by these judges, and, and they, they, they would bribe the judges, the judges would, 
would execute these, or they would uh, execute judgment on them of, of a sentence of death. And they were doing this in large part because they wanted the, what the other person had. They wanted their money. They wanted their land. They wanted maybe their power. Whatever, they, whatever this other person had is what they wanted. As we see, in the con- or as we see here relating to our text, they, they wanted more riches and more power. Now, I'm not saying that this was written in the time of Ezekiel. I don't think it was. I think it was written prior to the time of Ezekiel. But I, I do think that it, it, it mirrors in some ways what was going on in, in Ezekiel. And we see somewhat of the society in Israel at this time as well. And we see kind of that overall idea of what was going on to the psalmist here to some extent. Our psalmist, he's not been persecuted to the point of death, obviously, as he's, he's alive and writing this. But, but I think that we get a glimpse into the direction that Israel was going through this through this. Psalm. There is some form of cheating going on here. It could have been through the bribing of judges. Could have been through the lying to people about this person. Or could have been a number of different ways in which there was cheating going on. But we know there's cheating of this psalmist. There's some type of persecution going on of this psalmist at the hands of these who boast in their riches and abundance. And the psalmist is struggling with how to handle this. How not to be fearful through this, this situation, through this persecution. It's hard to suffer persecution at the hands of anyone, but at the hands of the wealthy and powerful, it, it seems even harder at times because it seems they're never going to be held accountable, right? There's, there's no remedy to that. They're in power. They have money. There's nothing that the common person can do to combat that. The psalmist saw that while on earth... They often would live and stay in power despite their wickedness. And it seems that this truth bothered him originally. Would this oppression ever end? Would the oppressor ever pay for their wickedness? So God gives him an answer to his struggles. And this answer is similar to the realization that Asaph had there in Psalm 73. And again, it is to look at this through an eternity view. Our psalmist focuses on the one major folly of these men of these in power, these that had been persecuting Him. The psalmist immediately here identifies in verse 6 and verses 7 why he need not fear or be concerned during the times of trouble from these men of power and wealth. In verse 6 he says that they trust in their riches and they boast in them. This of course is a major problem, right? Wealth and riches are things which moth and rust corrupt. They do not last. Now, wealth and riches can, can let a person down while here on earth. They can. I mean, you know, they don't always bring us through whatever we might be having as a, a problem. They don't always give us joy uh, or anything. We know that it, it doesn't give us lasting joy or peace even while here on earth in this life. But oftentimes, money does allow for a person to, to cheat judgment does allow for a person to have what they want now, to get some temporary joy, some temporary uh, you know, fleeting, passing enjoyment and, and whatever they, they seem to fancy at the time. And this seems to be precisely what has been troubling the psalmist. So this statement is not that he sees a, a fatal flaw with trusting in wealth and riches temporarily. As we will soon see, he's saying that the fatal flaw is trusting in wealth and riches from the perspective of death and eternal life. No matter the status here on earth of of anyone, everyone's life is subject to death. Everyone's life is subject to God's judgment, which cannot be swayed by material things. And so in a sense, what the psalmist is, is beginning here to say is that we are all on an even playing field, so to speak. 
No matter the walk of life that we are in, we are all in a, on an even playing field when it comes to death. We will all die one day. The psalmist goes on to say that it is too costly to ransom a life. In verse 7, it says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That doesn't keep people from trying though, right? There has been untold and incalculable amounts of money spent on attempts to find eternal life. I and mean, we went through the, a large number of them there to begin our, our sermon. All of these attempts, though, and, and all of this money is pointless. It's spent in vain. As you can see from those examples in the introduction, everyone leading up to, to 2013, the most previous example, everybody prior to that had, had died. All those attempts had failed, right? And all those who are attempting now through 2013 to whenever we, the, however long we're here till the Lord returns, those attempts will fail as well. The psalmist is making that exact point here. It is too costly because it's not possible. There's not enough money to prevent death. A person can have all the money in the world, literally all of the money in the world, and it would not prevent his death. Again, as we will see here soon, the psalmist does not strictly have just an immediate death here on earth alone in mind. He's still speaking of this from an eternal view. After death comes the judgment. Not only can a person not use their power and wealth to escape their, their physical death, they cannot use it to escape their spiritual death either. They will one day stand before God. And that day, no amount of money they have will change God's mind about His judgment on them. His judgment, God's judgment, will be righteous and true no matter how much money we have. No matter how much we would attempt to persuade or bribe or ransom our life. The actions of these wealthy, as the psalmist has detailed, clearly shows that their, their eternal life would be in peril then, upon death, right? I mean, they, they're, they're cheating, they're, they're working iniquity. They're described as those of, an, of iniquity. So upon death, I mean, their, their soul is in, in peril. One day they will stand before God, and, and again, no amount of money will change His righteous judgment. The ransom of their eternal life will also, would, or of any eternal life, would be costly. As impossible as it is to stand for a person to ransom a life here on earth, if I could say it this way, it's even more impossible to ransom your eternal life. The math doesn't add up, I know. I mean, if it's 100% impossible to do something, it's, how is it more impossible to do something that's 100% impossible? But while it is fathomable that God would extend the mortal life of someone for some reason, you can. One example we have that is Second Kings, two, uh, two, or Second Kings twenty with uh, King Hezekiah. You know, he was told he would die and soon, and he prayed, and God gave him and extended an extra fifteen years to his life, added fifteen years to his life, as the passage says. It isn't unfathomable that God would excuse any sin, and this is again true for all of us. There is no sin that God will excuse. We will either stand before God in our own sins and we will have to answer for our sins and our actions and what we've done or we will stand before God in Christ who, who already paid that debt. We'll get to more on that in a minute. 
There in verses 10 through 12, we read, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and, and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. The psalmist states how obvious it is that death is coming for all and nothing here on earth will, will stop that. Even the rich, he's saying even the rich, even these rich and powerful, they see this. I mean, they know the history of mankind. They know that there's never been a person that's ever ransomed himself from death. And they see it all the time around them. That's the irony of, of what's, been, what's going on here and what the psalmist is, is saying. I mean, it's obvious to them. People are dying all around them. There's nobody that's stopping the death or their death. And, and so he says, in that sense, we are no... More, we're no different than, than the beast. We're no different than the animal. And the psalmist expands beyond the groups of the powerful and lowly and poor, and he goes to the rich, to the wise and fools. Again, he just continues to hammer into this point that we are all subject to death. There is no group, no person out there who is going to be uh, not subject to, to death. There are genius level people who are who are going to die. There are mentally challenged people who are going to die. There are those who fear the Lord, the righteous, who will die. And there are those who are fools and reject God and and they will die. The president is going to die. The garbage man is going to die. Bill Gates is going to die. The homeless man is going to die. Look, we, we will all see death one day, is the psalmist's point. The certainty or death is, is, a, is a certain, Right? Those who have gained wealth, no matter how great, they're going to leave it behind when that death comes. Tomb after tomb has been uncovered in, in Egyptian pyramids, and nearly all have some coin or, or coins and gems and others, other things that they've left behind. And those Egyptians, they, they believed that those things would follow them into the afterlife, right? They, they, would, they would be able to carry them with them and enjoy them in their afterlife, but they're still in the graves, they're still in those tombs. The psalmist states that their graves are, are their homes forever. With all the effort put forth to live forever, ironically, the grave will hold the body instead of some earthly home that we've built or that we've bought. Our graves will hold our bodies and our wealth for every generation until the resurrection. We will still one day die. We will still one day be buried. And we will... Never be able to trust in the, the wealth and the power that we had while we were here on earth. If we were subject to any of that, that cannot be our trust. It, it will not follow us and it, it will not be something that we can trust in because it will be left behind. Those who are, he says here, those who are even powerful enough to conquer lands and then name them after themselves, they, they would die as well. You know, oftentimes people, they conquer lands, they name it after themselves, and they do so to, to attempt to gain some form of, of immortality. I mean, they might name it after a, a king, but the king is the one sending them, you know, and having it named after them. But it, nonetheless, it, it's some attempt to gain some form of immortality. If your name is there forever, you know, I mean, no, people will know you. They, you'll, you'll always be remembered, so to speak. But even that doesn't always last. I mean, men have conquered lands. They've named it after themselves. And then a generation later, someone else conquers the land and renames the land. But even if someone's name stayed on... A, if a piece of land was named after somebody and it stayed that way for thousands and thousands of years, 
what gain is there in that? What does that person care about that when he dies? Whether in heaven or in hell, the, the last thing someone will care about is whether a piece of land here on this temporary earth was named after them. And so again, the psalmist says we are no different than the animal when it comes to death. And, and really, he's, he's trying to, to bring humility here to those that hear this. God placed Adam on the earth to have dominion over it and over animals, right? He, he, he ruled over them, and we are different than the animal, despite what is tried to be taught today. We are different than the animal. We, we are made in God's image. That is not said about any animal. But when the fall came through the sin of Adam, then there was an equalization there to some extent. Specifically, there was an equalization in death, right? I mean, beast would die and man are going to die. We still have power and dominion over the beast while we're alive, but, but death comes for us just as it does for that animal. We can have all the arrogance and pomp in the world, but we are not stopping death, and that should humble us. In verses 13 through 15, we read, This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed to, to shield. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, he will, for He will receive me. Here in these, two, these three verses, we, we start to see life after death for the foolish and the arrogant compared to life after death for the righteous. The psalmist states that here in verse 13 that this is the path of the foolish confidence. Meaning that those who had foolishly trusted or boasted or have confidence in their wealth and their power, they will see death. That is their path. They will not escape it. The psalmist is not saying that the path of the arrogant is different from anyone else in, in that sense, that some will escape death. In fact, he's saying the opposite. They, they lived life thinking that they were invincible and that they could somehow escape the same fate as the common man, right? Verse 13 goes on to say that people in general, as they did this, as they lived this, this life, this arrogance, people approved of their actions or of their boasts. They, they held them up as great and never attempted to correct or humble them. And this is the way of humanity, is it not? I mean, we boast of the powerful, right? We, we, we boast up the powerful and, and we, we just kind of idolize those who have power and, and those who have money. We put, some pedest, put them on some pedestal and, and again immortalize them or idolize them. The truth is, they're going to die just like the rest of us. By idolizing them, though, we, we confirm in their minds that what they are doing and how they are living is somehow okay or acceptable or right. Verse 14 tells us, though, that like sheep, they are appointed to Sheol, and death is their shepherd. Look, sheep are notoriously are notorious for, for following the direction of their shepherd, right? The psalmist says that these, these rich then will follow their, their shepherd, death, death being their shepherd, into the grave, just as a sheep follows its shepherd into the, the pasture, into lands that it leads them into. They were appointed, or, or they will have a time where they see the grave. And as, a sheep, as sheep have a shepherd who controls and leads them, so will the grave and death have dominion over them as well, have control and authority over them as well. As Gerald Wilson puts it, like trusting sheep who follow their shepherd to pasture, those who trust in themselves find their true shepherd in death who leads them 
to pasture and Sheol. That's what, the, that's what the psalmist is saying here. This phrase here, shall be their shepherd, it, it, my understanding is that it is a verb in the Hebrew which can, can also be translated as lead to pasture or graze or, or potential uh, you know, translations of, of that, that phrase. The King James actually translate this, translates this, death shall feed on them. And I think this gives us really a picture of what the psalmist is saying here. A shepherd leads his sheep to graze and feed and prosper, right? That's the purpose of the shepherd. Death, though, is said to, to be a shepherd. that Those who trust in their, their wealth will lead to the grave, where death and the grave then will graze on them, will feed on them. So instead of being a good shepherd who leads to prosperity, the, the shepherd of death will lead to, to actually feed on those who trust in their wealth and that have death as their shepherd. And then in the middle of verses 14 and 15, we have a critical point in our text. The psalmist here, he makes certain that his approach to this subject is not just the here and now. It is not just some physical death and that's it. He's not just leaving it at just the physical death. The psalmist seems to be clear here about an afterlife. The mourning here, as we read it, is a reference to life after death. Death is often referred to as sleep in Scripture, right? To sleep. When do we wake from sleep? Well, assuming you don't have a two-year-old who wakes you up in the middle of the night often, or small bladders. I mean, I fall in both those categories. Uh, when do we wake up from sleep? Well, we wake up in the morning, right? So here the psalmist is saying that death will come for those arrogant men, and then when they wake in eternity in the morning, the righteous will rule over them. It is possible the psalmist means here that the righteous will rule in the sense that the tables will be turned, that you know, while they were here on earth, they were rich and powerful and they had everything they thought they wanted. And then as they die, they will face and see nothing but death and judgment and be grazed on by death and the grave, while the poor and oppressed, specifically the psalmist here, the oppressed here, the oppressed here who had... Seemingly nothing, or they were oppressed while here on earth. When they die, they will wake up and, and they will have all the bliss and all the blessings in heaven that we can't even think about or, or fathom. But we know that the redeemed will rule with Christ as well, right? I mean, we know that to be a, a truth. In, in 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul writes, If we endure... We will also reign with Him if we deny Him. He will also deny us. In Revelation 26, John tells us that blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. I think this is what the psalmist is pointing to here. In fact, the net translation, which I think is a really good translation, it actually renders this phrase, the godly will rule over him when the day of vindication dawns. So the psalmist is not just referencing the day of their death, but a day when the righteous who have been oppressed will be vindicated. And then they will rule over those who had oppressed them. In verse 15, the psalmist, he compares himself directly to those arrogant oppressors. Unlike the arrogant who will be ruled by Sheol and have the righteous rule over them, he will not be. God will ransom His soul from the power of Sheol. And this is beautiful. The arrogant was unable to prevent death or escape uh, the, the power of Sheol. He couldn't ransom his life no matter how much power, how much money he had. Neither could the psalmist. The psalmist couldn't do that either of his own. 
The difference between the psalmist and those arrogant men that he's speaking about, these oppressors, the difference between him and them is that he is not trusting in his power. He's not trusting in his wealth. He is trusting in the power of Yahweh. The psalmist knows that only Yahweh can defeat death for him. And so he trusts in him. And so Yahweh will deliver him. This ransom language is so important. Look, why would God need to ransom anything, right? I mean, can't He just do as He pleases? I mean, He's God, He's Creator, He can do whatever He wants. Well, not if He's a true, holy, and righteous God. He cannot just sweep sin under the rug. We all deserve death and eternal punishment for our sinful lives, right? That sin must be paid for. has to be. Otherwise, we'll all end up in the same place as this first group that, is, that the psalmist is speaking of. The good news is that sin has been paid for. God Himself paid that ransom. And the, the price was immense. The price paid on the cross was incredible. We can't, we can't even fathom that. The price paid for our eternal damnation by Jesus, by God Himself, through the ransom of Jesus is what the psalmist is talking about. What he's pointing to. Jesus paid the ransom for us, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all. Jesus has defeated death, hell, and the grave for us. Yahweh will receive all who have had their ransom paid through that death. In verses 16 through 20, the psalmist he wraps up and he he says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So he gives this final summary of what, what this wisdom has, has taught him. And it is to not be afraid of the earthly powerful, of the earthly rich, nor put confidence in wealth or power that anyone has now, and that includes ourselves. He includes himself in this, or he includes, he includes us in this. None of it lasts. We will all die. All the power or glory that a person has gathered to himself while living now will go away immediately when he dies. The names of the most powerful men to have ever lived are still known today to some extent. We, we know that history still bears them out. Most people probably, na- probably know the names of Napoleon or Julius Caesar or Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great. But none of those men took their fame or their power with them when they died. The glory that they had, as we see here in our passage, it went down with them into the grave, as verse 17 says. So, in comparison to our lives and our power and our riches now, eternity is much longer, right? It's much more. Our lives are but a vapor. All of that is but a vapor compared to eternity. Verse 18, while the arrogant and the rich live, they believe themselves to be, believe themselves to be blessed and great. Many make them believe that about themselves, right? They brag on them. We've talked about that already. The psalmist has addressed this. They idolize them. 
Everyone wants to be like the rich and the powerful. The psalmist then warns even the, the reader here, who is wealthy and powerful, or who could be wealthy and powerful, the believer is to be careful as well. Man's praise on us for our accomplishments or for our wealth or for our power, it can be intoxicating. It can be misleading. We can think more of ourselves than we should very quickly. We can allow man's praise to, be, to fool us into trusting in, in ourselves or trusting in what we have. And so the psalmist, he, he warns on, uh, us of that. He says, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself. So he encompasses us in this warning. Verse 20, I think, is, is such a key verse. This is a man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. That, that phrase, yet without understanding, it really keys us in to, to how this passage is to be, a, to be seen. Man in his pomp here is a, a general statement of all men. Mankind is pompous in general. That's just the truth of humanity. But anyone who remains pompous, he says, you will be just as the beast. Just like they perish, just as they die, you will die as well with no light to come after. Because, this is the key, because He is without understanding. Understanding in what? Well, in how eternity will come one way or another for us all. Understanding in how God will judge us all, and we will either stand in Him, in Christ, or we will stand in our wealth and in our works and in our, our own righteousness, which we have none of. Understanding in how eternal life can only be gotten by the payment that Christ gave on the cross. That's the lack of understanding. If you die, if you and your pomp die, yet without that understanding, you will be just as the beast that perishes. No different. A couple of thoughts as we, we wrap this up. Look, people, we, we try, I'll just I'll put myself in this as well. I think we, we can all fall in this. We, we, we try to cushion ourselves sometimes by, by heaping up riches or, or wealth or, or whatever we, we can muster here on earth. And we hope that that continual income is going to keep us from harm or some, for, from hardship. And, and sometimes we may even, part of us may think it's going to keep us from death or prevent death. The lie of wealth, though, for many is that this is just a false sense of security. It's a false sense of life. It's not real. It's not true. It's not going to prevent anything. Wealth is not the problem here, though. I want to make that, uh, make that statement clear. Wealth is not the problem here. It is that the ones who are wealthy in this text have put their trust and their joy in their wealth instead of in Yahweh. That said... Wealth can shelter us from difficulties of life and can make people think that this life is all we need or all we want. And maybe it might even make us think that it's better than heaven. Look, we are wealthy people in America. I mean, even if we're not wealthy by the standards of Americans, we are wealthy as Americans. The poorest of us live better than the richest in many countries. And I think sometimes because of that, we, we do have this almost like, what more can heaven give us, right? What more can, can there be to offer than what the joy we have now, what we can gain through our, our wealth and, and what we have here on earth now? That's just a false sense of security, though. That's a lie. 
But that wealth, the, 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 the peace that we have here and what God has really blessed us with, but sometimes we've turned that blessing into a curse, is the, the truth is, is that that blessing has probably sheltered us from the difficulties of life that many other people live through in other parts of the world and through the, the history of humanity. Don't let God's blessings in those things, though, rob us from the truth that we will all still die and we will await either eternal judgment or what real blessing is in heaven. So set your, your focus and your trust not on those things, but on Christ. I mean, by, by saying this, how do we, we pay God back for the ransom that He paid on the cross? The price that He paid for us there. Is that possible? No. We can't. So quit trying. The price He paid is too high for any hope of any restitution that you could put, put forth. And thankfully, God doesn't ask us for any repayment. He only tells us to have faith in His work on the cross. Focus on that. Stand with me.